Okay, we're going to begin. This is a story called Litigation, 1982 to 2002. Taken from It's Rum Life, Book 3, Ivy House Tales, 1970 to 1984. Most things we remember are the good times in life, the fun and happy memories. Sometimes, though, you just cannot forget the really awful things either. This is a longer story than some of the others, and it spread over 20 years. Even as I write, I do not really know if it is over yet. During our stay in New Bolingbroke from 1970 to 1984, it came to pass that there were a few voluntary positions that needed filling from time to time. Some of these experiences will be related in other stories, but this particular one had its origins in our local parish council, of which I was a member for some 12 years or so. Local councillors are expected to have the interests of their local community at heart, and one of the main problems occurring in our locality during the 1970s was the ploughing up and subsequent closing of public footpaths and bridleways by some of the larger local farming community. I must take a break here and explain that most farmers are quite happy living with their neighbours and are very community-spirited. There are just that handful in each area that think they are above the law and must just do whatever they wish and do not believe that anyone has the audacity to confront them with right and wrong. It fell to me to propose that as one particular obnoxious family had destroyed most of our local paths and bridleways in the village, something should be done about it. Lincolnshire County Council, like most rural counties, has a footpaths and bridleways officer. No doubt he or she has many other tasks too, but they do have this distinguished title. The Parish Council made official complaint about the farmer in question and asked for an investigation of all footpaths and bridleways in the area. To cut a long story shorter, we heard nothing for some considerable time and then quite suddenly, and to as much surprise of the farmer in question as to the local council, we received a letter from the county stating that this particular issue was receiving close attention and a budget had been granted for re-signposting of all footpaths and bridleways in the county. No sooner had we received this than our obnoxious farmer friend found signs literally all over his farm. He became apoplectic and seemed to think that I was solely responsible for his punishment. One of his numerous farms comprised some several hundred acres behind where we lived in the village and had four access roads to this land within the village. 
Not long after the footpath signs arrived on his land, he called at our house, and very unpleasantly demanded a right-of-way through our yard at the side of our house into his fields beyond. This would be in about 1981-82. He was so abusive and unpleasant that he put my wife Ruth immediately in tears. I naturally refused this unpleasant demand, although did not immediately realise what had prompted this confrontation. I was only one counsellor among some seven or eight. The farmer had pots of money, and it was not long before court papers began to arrive. I'd never had much in the way of spare finance. In fact, the transport business that my wife and I had started was always scraping along the bottom, as it were. We existed and paid most of the bills most of the time. So no spare money for solicitors or legal advice. In court. The first hearing was in Lincoln before a judge. I had to wait a little while in an antechamber, as is the norm, the solicitor for the farmer was a most charming man who really did not wish to do what he was doing. He could see right through the reasons for the action and very kindly told me how to handle my end of the problem. I never did see him again. I do hope he was not discharged for assisting me. The outcome of this first hearing I do not remember too well, but after I had said my piece to the judge, it appeared to be a stalemate. Nothing happened for some time, but our business was not going too well. A lucrative contract with an international client, Uniroyal, had come to an end. I had been working for over a year on a replacement national contract, TMC, but that was subsequently sunk by competitors within the industry I worked for. Because of financial conditions in the new contract, they managed to make me dissolve my business and I lost the contract in so doing. See the Lincoln Spiv. Consequently, in 1983, ECYB Transport came to an end, with no income to pay the mortgage. I had to sell the house and find somewhere else to live far, far cheaper. As you may gather from other diary stories, Ivy House at New Bolingbrook was a Georgian country gentleman's abode. We loved it, and after 14 years there, dearly dreaded the idea of leaving. Selling the house. Our good neighbour John Rundle had three sons, and the youngest, Alan, had always said that if ever we were to sell our house, he would like to buy it. Alan and our Ruth and I duly agreed a satisfactory price, and the sale was agreed. Alan subsequently married another Ruth. Alan knew about the dispute. Who didn't? As the dispute involved the property we were selling, Alan would not buy it until the dispute was settled. This is now December 1983. I had to give in, in court, in front of another judge. I had to explain the situation and why I had to cave in. The judge said I was very sensible and whatever, and obviously the farmer's solicitors were delighted. We had a thoroughly rotten Christmas that year. See the story, Beryl at Christmas. 
and the house sale was completed by the following Easter, and we moved to Northcote at Great Steeping. Northcote was idyllic for the horses in the family, but not so much for us, as Ruth and Helen and I had to cram ourselves into a very small two-up and two-down country cottage, the whole about one-tenth the size of Ivy House. Alan's elder son, Ken, was our neighbour on the left at New Bolingbroke. He stopped me one day just before we moved to explain that their firm's lorry driver had been taken ill, and as I did not have any job at that time, would I like to fill in and drive for them until he returned? This was a truly superb time. After the trauma of the move and the loss of the business, someone had given us a chance. See more Northcote tales about the crane lorry. Several months went by, with us now living at Northcote and trying to get the property into some order between working weekdays for Rundles. Returning home from work one day, there was a solicitor's letter awaiting me. The farmer solicitors had been to court and been granted costs against me for the action. This time, I was apoplectic. I had not received any notice of the further action and not had any chance to put my case. Despite seeking whatever advice I could, there was no way out. I had been well and truly stitched up. The costs. The bill was in excess of £3,500. I had to ask the the court for time to pay and was granted the chance to pay by instalments. It took me some time to recover from this initial shock. Ruth was working as a nurse part-time and we were just managing to pay our way again from the very bottom. Now I had to find the extra huge amount. I didn't tell Ruth. She had enough on her plate with the move and she really did not like the house. From a beautiful established Georgian home of 14 years with four huge bedrooms, two reception rooms, an 18 square foot kitchen and lots more. We were in a small cottage with two tiny bedrooms and a box room, one room downstairs and a kitchen in a converted garage. It was was naturally very different for her. Money was tight and I really did not relish paying this dreadful man for giving me several years of hell already. I did not have a bank account now and consequently set one up to enable me to pay this dastardly amount. I told the farmer solicitors how I have so far avoided mentioning his name is very difficult. When one puts things into print, one has to have some care, especially with folk who have the money to pay for court actions willy-nilly. I told them that I would endeavour to pay something monthly. If my memory serves me correct, the plaintiff had fixed it, so I never got the chance to defend myself in court over the costs, and so I had not stated in court that I could pay so much or when. It had to come out of income, an income left over after I had to live. I made one or two casual payments for £20 or so, and then forgot. Even more unpleasantness. 
After a year or so, the farmer's solicitors were not too happy about that. However, my thoughts dwell on the fact that he was paying solicitor's fees for chasing me. That made me feel better all the time. Over the next few years, I'd still managed to pay less than £100 in total, despite receiving regular threats whenever I forgot to pay. I was a very slow payer. Eventually, after one long winter without me sending anything, they became very unpleasant. I never kept any more money in this account than I intended paying when I could. I think it was one springtime. I remember that I was now working for the Lincolnshire Standard in Skegness, writing and taking the photographs for their new midweek free paper. So many years had gone by with all this hanging over my head. One year rolled into another without any real difference. I had noticed, though, that Alan Rundle had become very settled in my old house, and the gate I had erected at the end of the yard, into the farmer's field, was still in the same place and totally unmoved, five years on. Back to the story. In the bank account I had created for paying the farmer was something like £130. In the back, in the mid-1990s, without a great deal of notice, they applied to the courts for a garnishee order. This is a method of getting money from someone who won't pay. The court wrote to my bank, much to their consternation, as did their solicitor. I remember I did not have a solicitor to help. The bank wrote to me and said they had no choice but to pay the money to the solicitor. Bang went my £130. But I earnestly believe the farmer and his solicitor thought the account held my whole worldly goods. I didn't pay anything else that year. In fact, I didn't pay anything else at all and waited for the next round. Readers or listeners, please remember that all this started in around 1982. The next round. The next unpleasant development was in about 2000, but it could have been 2001. I could look all this up, as I have the papers naturally, but it brings things unpleasant memories back and I prefer to guess. Writing this is rather different to poring over old papers. In some way it is a relief to put it all on paper, although in this next episode I had to do a great deal of writing to keep my sanity. Back to the story. It is, say, 2001 and the mental torture has been going on for almost 20 years. The next solicitor's letter mentioned a man of the same name as the original unpleasant farmer, but with different initials. The solicitors wanted to know why I had not made any payments and issued evil threats. I replied that, firstly, who was this other person they were representing and what had happened to the first plaintiff? They replied, surely you must know he is dead. This is the son who is carrying on the action. Goodness, I thought, one big happy family. I stalled for a while, but eventually they became really nasty, and one day a letter arrived threatening to make me bankrupt if I did not pay what they wanted. Imagine the situation. I had been a responsible local councillor, 
It'd be my name on the letter asking for action from the county council to have our footpaths and bridleways replaced. This was the whole reason for the twenty years of persecution and mental stress I had endured. During the intervening years, as we settled into life at Great Steeping, I'd once again be asked to serve as a local parish councillor. Since leaving New Bolingbroke, I'd resigned as chairman of the governors of the local secondary school after fighting a particularly nasty attempt to close that excellent school by a county councillor who eventually was proved to be a crook and served a jail term. Due to moving house and going to live in Great Steeping, I had also resigned as chairman of governors of the primary school at New Bolingbroke and the local parochial church council. I was not going to give in that easily to the equally obnoxious farmer's son and his conspiring band of solicitors. I sent a reply to the effect that if they wished to proceed along those lines, I would do my utmost to ensure they would wish they had never begun the action in the first place. Writing to Friends I began to write to friends. I should mention here some facts I have probably missed out on this journey. From 1984 until 1988, I went back to working for newspapers. In 1960, on leaving school, newspapers were my first job. This was a time when people did a multitude of jobs. I did anyway. See Life at the Linkshire Standard in It's a Rum Life, book two. In the 1980s, I worked firstly for the Skegness Standard and latterly for Morton's Publishers, uh, publishers of the opposition newspaper in the same town. I made good friends over the years, and one gave me a book during this next difficult time. It was a book by Graham Harvey. Uh, Graham is the agricultural story editor for The Archers. His book told of the big Lincolnshire prairie farmers who ripped out hedgerows and created hundred-acre-plus fields, all in the name of progress. One of these so-called progressive farmers mentioned in the book just happened to be my old friend, the plaintiff. Confrontation. I wrote to Graham with my story. He could not help, but offered support. I wrote to Charles Clover, a feature and countryside writer for the Daily Telegraph. They dare not. I wrote to the editor of the Grimsey Telegraph, a regional daily with good readership and one that had genuinely supported my efforts in rescuing creaky old horses at Northcote. The really local local papers would not touch my story with a barge pole because of local politics. It was all too near to home for them. The Grimsby Telegraph actually published a piece about my many years of victimisation. I was delighted and obviously very pleased. It's 2004 now and I suppose I must wait and see if this son of unpleasantness continues. Or he might have a, he might have a son who is even worse. I might add that when I state that the original plaintiff, the father, was unpleasant, that is putting it very mildly, a more unpleasant man you would have to go a long way to meet. 
Meet him you would not wish twice. Big, flurried, fat, loud-mouthed, selfish, rude to the extent of uncouth and ignorant. Then more, and more, and even more. Even then, I could not hope to paint a true picture of the man. Son of the man, who had worked hard in the past, no doubt, and put together a considerable holding of land. Now his son is carrying on the traditional. Worshippers of wealth they are, and recognisers of good they are not. Fields of one hundred acres plus they have many, as far as the eye can see, simply because on their land there are no hedgerows or trees or anything else that is nice. I have always believed that good will prevail in all things. Evil can be defeated, but it does not happen overnight. I was not really surprised to hear that the original plaintiff had died. One of the oldest sayings is that there are no pockets in shrouds. You cannot take it with you. Time will tell, and those who live longest will see most, and I must admit to a gentle smirk every time I drive through New Bolingbroke and see those lovely public footpath signs. There we are, that's the end of this this longer story. There are lots more stories to read in Keith Sanders, the short story man, dot wordpress.com. Lots of audio, more audio stories to listen to on this free Buzzsprout site. There are lots of videos to watch on Keith Sanders, the short story man on YouTube. And of course, there's a shop. All the stories that you listen to or read are compiled in book form. The books are available to buy. They're not expensive. You can download them on the internet. Do have a look at our site on Richard Keith Sanders dot cells, S-E-L-Z dot com. Thank you for listening.